You're listening to Joe Dalton on Dublin South FM, crossing the Rubicon. Once again, yes, it's Tuesday. It's Dublin South FM. And as you know, I try and bring you the best guests, great people from all around the world, people that will inspire you, educate you, get that curious mind moving and hopefully develop your brain and your business. Today, we're going to be talking to Josh Cotton, PhD, a best-selling author and a psychologist. Josh has spent many years researching Navy SEALs and other elite performers. We'll be chatting about his findings and how you can use his research in your daily life and picking a winning team for your organisation. Josh, welcome to Dublin South FM Radio. Thanks, Joe. It's nice to be here. Josh, why talent acquisition? You know, some people will probably yawn when they hear that and other people will get excited. But what, what, what was your why? Honestly, I did not choose to go into the world of hiring. More specifically, I, what I chose to do was to take psychological research and concepts and apply them to the workplace to try to help organizations function better, people function better within organizations, where the greatest need for my skills seems to remain and uh, doesn't seem to shift no matter how hard I try, is in the world of hiring. And I think the reason for that is that the longer you've been doing it, the longer you've been hiring, the more you realize that you don't know what you're doing. There are many managers out there who would say, I know exactly what to look for. And they know to look for a handful of things and they learn that over time. But just like anything in the world, same with my my PhD, um, one of the shocking experiences, I think, of anybody who's been to uh, higher levels of education as you start to recognize the fact that you know very little and <laughs> that even with an extra degree or two, you didn't learn, you feel like you did not learn enough. I would agree because, you know, when we brought in interns who were full of beans and eager into an organization to help us who were, were crafting the ma- and their mastery in a certain industry, we were looking and going, okay life experience and business experience way way out the value that a person will learn in a classroom one of the things that i discovered as well was a lot of the stuff that we learn in the classroom is based on large 500 fortune companies it's not really based on the small smes that keep every country afloat and large big organizations have money to waste and they can do stuff and try and get it right because they have time and they're big and they've got millions smaller companies can't follow that train of thought which is in the textbooks and they need to think something really quickly and really fast to get the business moving forward it's fascinating you would say that because on the one side that's absolutely true But on the other side, every single person who's out there hiring, big companies, small companies, when it comes down to the individual who's trying to figure out who to put on their team, they all feel like a small business. Like, for example, I would say the number one fear that people have in hiring is that I'm going to bring somebody in who's going to just destroy everything. And again, I think that somewhat comes from experience. Uh, The longer you've been hiring, you've probably, you know, you've made some mistakes. And that's actually the way that I will often open the door to the idea that there can be improvements as I ask them. 
Have you ever made a hiring error? Have you ever hired somebody that you wish that you hadn't? And it takes somebody with some experience for them to say yes. And I'm like, good. Have you ever hired anybody that was a great success? They say yes. I say good. What I try to do is I help you get more of the successes and less of the failures. It brings up a question. Would you hire a born surgeon to operate on you or a, or a highly trained surgeon to operate on you? That, that's a yeah, exactly. That and that's a tough question. And you know, when it really comes down to it, people are so complicated that what you really need to do is evaluate each person as they come. You know, the world of software, I think, is teaching all industries today that degrees don't matter as much as they used to, that skills matter. And the truth really is, is that they can both matter. And if you've got both, that's even better. However, Organizations have had to, over the past, I don't know, 15 years, who hire software engineers have had to shift from saying, I want you to have a bat in the US, I want you to have a bachelor's degree, to I want you to show me that you can do it. And that shift is, is still going on today. People still don't know, is a bachelor's degree, does that indicate success or not? That's just one aspect of the complexity of evaluating a human. And that's why, again, I help organizations because what I do is I take these practices that have worked in many, many other situations and I just, I teach people how to do it. Like a simple example would be a structured interview. A structured interview in its simplest form is asking the same questions of every candidate. Now, ideally you're asking good questions of every candidate. As you know, I work in the world of psychological testing, psychological assessments, and I have my own. People can check it out. The reason I bring it up is there are assessments out there that most of the people in my industry do not respect. However, if you've been using it for 20 years, all right, you're getting some good analysis out of that because you can compare your unique applicants to the next person that comes in and everybody's taking. So sometimes even the wrong question could still be good because you're asking all applicants. So that's one of the simplest things I think people could do is make your, uh, you know, figure out the right questions, sure, but start asking the same ones of every candidate so you can compare. Is it, is it not common sense to be asking the same questions to people all the time to find out where the direction is going? The other you thing, think. you would think, yeah, which I'm a bit shocked. No. And, and, and the other part of it then is, what do you do if you have a bad HR person? Because sometimes you could have a HR person who doesn't want to hire someone who is better than them because they're fearful that they'll take their job. So now you're talking about the uh, concept of, well, at least it makes me think of elite performers. Um, elite performers, truly, they're not afraid of, of things like that. In fact, they would, they would welcome the challenge. The, it's the mediocre people who are scared of somebody out competing them. And absolutely, they can get in the way. Um, I guess I, I, every situation is different. What percentage of people, Dan, is mediocre? Most of them. Statistically speaking, in, a, in, in the world of like the bell curve, um, there's the middle number, the mean, the average, and then it's a plus one, minus one standard deviation on either side. That captures a giant portion of the population. What I just described 
is the statistical average population. That's 64% of the population falls right there. Right in, in the, the middle of the bell's curve. So yes. where did you come up with your theory? My interest was because you did an evaluation on Navy SEALs and try to understand what makes a Navy SEAL. It's about mind. It's about how far you can push the mind and still be calm in the center of that storm when a tornado is flying around you. Yeah, that is my one of my favorite topics in the world. Um, the reason I went into psychology in the first place is because I'm fascinated by people. And uh, the reason that I went into this segment of psychology, which focuses on generally most people, normal people, performing people, rather than focusing on the people who are broken or, or deeply struggling, like depression. And when, in, when I'm in the workplace and trying to study people, what I like to study, of course, are the best. And I've had the opportunity to study the best in many settings. I've studied CEOs and I've studied um, you know, high-performing executives. And of course, as you just mentioned, I got to study the U.S. Navy SEALs. And I actually worked with them for three and a half years. So this wasn't just, I did a research paper, launched a survey, did some interviews or something like that. I was essentially embedded with them, helping them hire. And I was helping them hire using a psychological assessment, which meant I got to get behind the scenes of even what they think of themselves to understand what's going on, how do they think, what's different about them. There's a lot of things that are different but the good news is, is I think many of them are achievable. And I think what you said about the mindset is absolutely the core learning that I took away. The core learning that I took away from the Navy SEALs, this is really good stuff for your listeners, I hope they're paying attention, is the way they see the world and approach life um, is they approach life from the standpoint of I want to be better. And it's that simple. They say every day, I don't know if they say it to themselves. It's just deep in their heart. Every day they want to be better than yesterday. So what does that do? It does several things. It shifts your mindset from seeing what people would call the difficulties of life. They would see them as literally opportunities to get better. And once I discovered that, that that's what they were doing, I started to adopt it for myself. And it's it's been such a stress relief. It's been, um, it's turned work at, in an office environment into fun because I'm learning to be better. I'm growing. Uh, it transformed, at least at the time, my attitude from, uh, I was working in the government and the government is full of bureaucracy, which means it's full of barriers. It turned my attitude towards barriers, which will always be frustrating. But from this frustrating experience of, you know, it shouldn't be this hard. Okay, it shouldn't, but why whine about it? To, oh, there's a way around this barrier and I'm going to figure it out. And it's like an adventure. It makes life an adventure. You're like, think, think about us as a, a, a mouse in a maze trying to get to the cheese. And do we want to be that mouse who's upset that they can't see the cheese? Which, of course, it could be upsetting. Or do we want to be the mouse that says, there's cheese in here and I'm going to find it. And that's what a Navy SEAL does. A Navy SEAL every day, they say, I'm going to find the cheese. You can't stop me. And that's how they approach life. 
elaborate on how you apply this to your life and then we can get into psychopaths as well and where they resonate on the leadership role one of the things i was laughing that you said you got into it because of human behavior do you know i got into sales because i loved human behavior makes a lot of sense they're very they're very similar Salespeople are usually very good at understanding others they pay attention to the movements of the tones and they say oh i know what this person is thinking and i'm going to connect with them or to get into radio (laughs) (laughs) makes sense it absolutely makes sense i i am a little jealous of your career path to be honest i was thinking about it this morning before before we before i joined that you picked a fun career path i wish i could i wish i could have had that career path well as you say it's never too late but Tell us, jumping back, how do you apply what you've learned into your life? Our audience here has got their pen and paper out and they're going, okay, I want to change my mindset. We know that the most important thing and the one thing that holds everybody back is their mindset. I've said this in many interviews. It's like getting a pick and you have to pick away at it because it's inbred, it's indoctrinated into you from the from an early age. And when you come aware, you have to start picking it out on it. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it, you're absolutely right. And it comes from multiple sources. There's cultural, there's what your parents taught you. There's even biological. I have a list of tips that I can provide. Let's go through them. I have four of them that I think your audience will appreciate. The first one is to focus on today. So what do you have that you're facing today? Rather than, here's the contrast, worrying about things from the past that first of all, you can't even change, or worrying about all of the possibilities of things that could go wrong tomorrow. Focus on today doesn't mean ignore the future or ignore the past, but where do you spend most of your energy? Uh, Where are you ruminating? Focus on the things that you have sitting in front of you today, which leads to two different other tips. Uh, Two different other tips are, number one would be adaptation is a key to success. Adaptation in the psychological world is behavior change. It is, um, you can think about it in an evolution standpoint, biology. uh, The biology responds to the environment. And so it does things differently next time. Again, this is like common sense, but you'd think I wouldn't have to say this, but I do. There's a lot of people who have a lot of problems in their lives that are just simply repeating patterns that they refuse to break. So what you really have to do is, and this this is how you break that cycle, and it comes from the military. At least the Army calls these AAR, which is an after-action review. The way I would say it for your listeners is stop, study, and shift. So take some time every once in a while, maybe once a week, once a month, sit down, think about what did you do? What, what did you accomplish? What, what ended during the past month? And how did you do it? How did it, how did it go? What can you learn from it? We don't do that. Humans tend to just move on to the next thing. Uh, and if you do stop study and shift, you will grow much faster than the people who don't. The same applies to organizations. The organizations that do that, military, for example, what they're able to do is build on the collective knowledge of hundreds of years. 
the rest of us who are just out there kind of winging it every day and like, oh yeah, that, that didn't work out so well. What's the one thing that we should have done differently and move on? We're not building on all of that knowledge, all of that human ability. And I said that the focus on today leads to two things, adaptation. And the third one, or the next one, I'm sorry, is the build every day. So what do I mean by that? If focused on today, also think about what can you accomplish today and do it. Sometimes people get stuck. They get stuck saying, um, if I don't get that brand new car, I'm not going to be happy. And so they're going and they're saving and they're waiting and they're waiting. What they're not doing is they're not recognizing the success of saving today. So I cho I'm choosing today not to spend that extra $20 so that I can save for the car. That is a success. And you need to keep collecting those and building on them. Because here's the other thing that happens. Um, if you want to know what is the secret to predicting success, from your applicants, it's to look for prior success. There's a famous statement out there that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. It's because we're humans and we're full of patterns and we repeat these patterns. Well, same is true for you. Have success today. Find what you can have successful, you can accomplish successfully today because the more times you do that, the more you will accomplish over life. And that's what I found with the elite performers. What I found is, I told you they, I'm not sure if I phrased it exactly this way, but they seek out challenges because those are learning opportunities. So imagine now a human who seeks out challenges and learns from them and is excited by them. What's going to happen over time? They accomplish so much. It's that those are the people who become... Not everybody becomes a Navy SEAL who has this mindset. Some of them become CEOs of, of giant organizations. And again, you know, they're not facing the difficulties of life and saying, oh, this is so sad for me. You know, they are facing those difficulties and saying, how are we fixing this? Let's fix this. Let's learn from this. How did we get here? Okay. And now let's move on. I would agree with you 100% because, you know, one thing that I say when I'm coaching would is to people, I say you have this big red button. And if you're full of anxiety, if you're having a bad day, hit that big red button and that is start again. Doesn't matter about the past. Don't worry about the future. Hit that and go, what can I do right now in this moment to move forward? And I think that is one of the biggest things that CEOs, executives, anyone in anyone or any organization need to actually just stop, take a breath and go, what do I need to do to move forward? Unfortunately, some people will do that, but they'll continue on the same what they did before and still getting the same results. What do you say to them? Oh, gosh. Well, so... People don't seem to enjoy when I make this comparison, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've studied a lot of different thinking styles out there, and I take what I appreciate from them. There is a, um, a, a group in the United States, it's probably world worldwide for all I know, called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they have... The 12 steps. Yes, and, but they also have this one uh, statement that they like to say. They, they define insanity as doing the same things over and over again, but expecting different results. And it's true. I think it was, um, was it Albert Einstein said that? It is human nature. 
And here's part of the reason I mentioned it. I've alluded to it a couple times, but um, the brain's very efficient, and those efficiencies sometimes lead us astray. One of those efficiencies is the brain says, you already figured that out. An example I like to give is um, the chair that anybody is sitting in right now. They did not test it before they sat down. That's because your brain says, yeah, I already know. I know I know what that chair will do. And I've sat in that chair hundreds of times. I, I'm confident in the chair. Okay, great. Well, that applied to the wrong decisions does the exact same thing. It says, you don't have to think about it. You already figured this out. And and you do. You have to stop and question it. So it's that after action review. It's the stop, study, and shift. If you don't stop and study, you won't notice it. And like you said, you have to notice these thought patterns so that you can address them. And it's the key. Looking at HR and hiring someone, and you can have great tests to try and get that elite performer to work with you. But what if the market you're crying out for people because at the moment there's a shortage of people. Even though you want A, you'll accept C because you can't get A at the moment. What do companies do there? That's a great, that's a great one. You you come up with all of the difficulty, the difficult ones, don't you? So I guess there's two two ways to handle that. One is you can reconstruct your job so that you can get some level of success out of a person who doesn't have very high caliber. That's not my preference. My preference is you you find the better performers. There is an example of, um, it was in the US, I forget the year at this point, it might've been uh, one of the, it was President Bush Jr., I believe. There was this giant expansion of the border patrol in the south of the US. And they like doubled the workforce. They did it rapidly. And in order to achieve that, they lowered the standards. Let me tell you what, how that went wrong. That went wrong because they hired criminals. They hired people in the, the Latin American mafias and gangs, infiltrated the border patrol because they lowered the standards. So I never recommend lowering the, lowering the standard. So that's my, my preference is do not lower the standard. But if you have to, reconstruct the jobs. Well, here's the question then I have. If we're talking about the bell curve and the majority fit in the middle and we're looking for that 1% that is the elite and that's a limited amount of people and everyone else is fitting in, you know, the 64% or whatever it be, what do you do? That's that's a yeah man you're you're good at this. There are there's several things you can do. One is my favorite here's my favorite one. My favorite one would be to identify when I'm talking about what the situation you just spoke about. It's a little bit artificial because when we're hiring somebody for a job, we're not necessarily looking for exceptional people. We're looking for somebody who fits into that specific job. So somebody in the middle of the pack could fit into that job very well. That's okay. Hire those people. They'll be successful. But when we're talking about the elite performers, which a lot of people would agree that the 80-20 rule is real, that 20% uh, 20 of your workforce are creating 80% of the value, 
So you, what you still need to do is always be on the lookout for those. However, there's something else that I think is a bit more practical, which is find what all of these people are great at and then give them those opportunities. So let's say I'm hiring an accountant, but that accountant happens to be really great at strategy. Although what I need them to do is count, count things and be accurate. So, all right, that's most of their day. But if that particular accountant is very good at strategy, then I want to involve them in the financial strategy projects as often as I can. I want to, I want to get that part of them to grow and to contribute to my organization. And that, I think, is what most companies and leaders miss, is figuring out not just, okay, who can do the, the basics of what I need out of this role, but what else drives them? What else are they great at? And giving them those opportunities, which does a, a couple of things. Number one, it keeps them. Because if you've been in a number of companies, and let's say you're an accountant, and you've been in a number of companies, if all of a sudden this company where you are today appreciates the fact that you're good at strategy, whereas all of the rest of them just said, please you know, count things and be accurate, and we have strategy people, then the company that appreciates that about you, you're going to stay longer. So number one, it keeps people around longer. But real quick, there's number two is you then get this extra benefit. When people are inspired about something, they don't mind the extra work. It's fun for them. And that's when the people's brilliance comes out. So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I'm fascinated by people. And one of the things I find the most fascinating about people is their brilliance. This is, I, I, I can never think of another example, but I find it amazing that prisoners escape from prison. That's like got to be the hardest thing ever. There's guards, you, there's yeah, walls, yeah. there's and You got to be ballsy as well. Yeah. The whole yeah. thing's designed to keep you there, and yet people escape. That is brilliance to me. So whatever that is, we want that in a good way, um, and we want to bring that out of people. People want to be valued, and when people feel valued – they will go that extra bit because, and being valued is also being heard. My own opinion is that upskilling and training someone. So if you have someone that's in the company that is doing something and you can see they are eager to learn and they're, they're, they've hit a bit of a stagnant, it's not like, oh, we need to get rid of them. It's about the company investing in the staff and upskilling up training that person to be even better. And if someone wants to stay within the organization, they will embrace that then as well. Yes, but the one the one part that you said that is probably the most difficult of that is recognizing when somebody's stagnant. So I would actually flip it and say, offer your people opportunities and the ones that have that interest, enable it. You know, give them Google does, I don't know if they still do this, but they they were for quite a while doing some sort of practice, right? It was every other Friday or every Friday, people were not supposed to do their normal job. They were supposed to work on creative projects that, you know, nobody's assigned to them. And they have this process. Again, you know, software is different. There's a lot we can learn from them. But they have this process where there's ideas that get generated, they get nominated uh, to be considered. And if, if people agree that it's a value, you're allowed to form a team. And that's a route to promotion. All of a sudden, you come, you go from being the coder 
to the leader of a project because you had a great idea. And there's, uh, if you use Gmail and things, there's uh, a bunch of the features that you see came from that. From my MS DOS days, I've even found bugs and stuff in YouTube. And I've said to them, hey, this doesn't work. And they go, oh, we're, we're still developing it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, when I'm p p putting stuff together, I go, hmm, that's not working. So, but one of the other things as well, if someone is stagnant, absenteeism is a good yardstick. But what I just want to jump back as well. Is it about how the person was brought up? Yeah, no. So that's a, that's a, okay. I'll give you an example from the Navy SEALs. They have studied um, all of the things that are correlated with success, which isn't the same thing as causation. But one of, one of the very fascinating trends is that uh, there were kind of two main types of backgrounds that produced people successful in Navy SEAL training. One background, these are um, people who grew up in upper middle class, two-parent households, educated backgrounds, healthy individuals. They tended to be more successful. But by complete contrast, there were the other group who basically had a very rough childhood but learned to overcome it. So they had difficulties, but they got past it. They continued to get better. You know, perhaps they felt the world was against them and they were going to do it anyway. So those types of people as well were predictive of success. Now, both groups can end up in bad places. Uh, I would say the first group I mentioned and most studies would say that they are um, more successful. Peer pressure. Well, yes, peer pressure is a big part, too. And to the extent that you respond to that, there's there's another group of people who were unsuccessful, and this is uh, this is something that I think is fascinating. The uh, most elite athletes sometimes, and including Olympic athletes, would come to Navy SEAL training and wouldn't make it. And it's like, well, hey, this doesn't make any sense. What what the belief is that people who have been successful their entire life have always been the best, couldn't handle the pressure of being one of these great people. And they couldn't handle the pressure of being told that they're not great. <laughs> and so they couldn't, they, they're used to their support system and they lost it. And unlike hopefully your children, um, when you're not around, they're carrying your teachings with them. That is fascinating because if you look at parents who tell their children they're wonderful all the time and give them everything all the time and children are spoiled and if they are winning and, you know, where schools give everybody a medal for not for winning, but everyone for participating, um, then when that rug is pulled from beneath them, they will have those issues and then retract within and probably may cause cycle more psychological damage which is causing them to have a behavior which is i'm not good enough and what's what you reminded me of i actually and i won't go into the story because it's too long but i was able to demonstrate that one of the paths to successful uh, seal training was people that went through this sort of pre-training experience where they were exposed to 
uh, a little focused amount of what it's like and then given time to recover and it was all voluntary. And then they came back and it got harder. They would go through it, had time to recover, and then they come back, which taught me something really important, which is you can develop resilience. Yeah, I think it's awareness. And I think the more aware that someone comes about themselves, the stronger they are. Absolutely agree. And the external stuff doesn't matter, which I did in my TEDx talk, which is doesn't matter. It's the internal stuff. The internal stuff is where it's like um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder or um, perceptions are reality. You know, perceptions are not reality, but they are in your head. If your head's screwed up and you don't know it's screwed up, you're going to screw up. And it's about removing that junk. Psychopaths. You know, when people think psychopath, they think of the movie. <laughs> Something comes out. But not all psychopaths are killers. And um, was there a survey or there's some work done that a lot of psychopaths are CEOs of organizations? Let me start with the uh, just the qualifier that I specifically did not go into that area of psychology in my studies. I chose to go where the normal people are, where most of us. But I will, I will, I do want to say something that I believe is probably similar to the typical psychopath. The reason why, let before you answer that question, the reason I asked is because at the very beginning that you said you did some studies on C-suite executives as well. So there is a nuance of. I don't want to say psychopaths, but there's there is something that I find a little disturbing, and it is the fact that some of the most successful people out there, um, they're not as empathetic, and it actually makes sense as to why. Now, the good ones, here's what the good ones do. The good ones know that about themselves, and they will act empathetic anyway. They will ask the questions. They will make it a priority. We don't always have to just have a, a heart for what we're doing, right? Some things we know are just good for us. Like I, I don't I don't get excited about brushing my teeth, but I will do it every day, multiple times, right? Same thing here. Good good people leaders do things regardless of how they feel about it because it's good. Uh, it's good for the people, it's good for the team. So the good leaders will still take an interest in people, they will still try to you know build people up. But what I what I do see psychologically is they don't care as much what other people think. Now, here's why that's helpful. I, I care very much what people think. I study it. I obsess about it. I love it. And I've always fought my own battles between, you know, being like a people pleaser and getting my own stuff done. Right. What's good for me, not just what's good for other people. But honestly, I'm, I'm very compassionate and I get a lot of joy out of it. So um, I, I try to keep my life balanced. But at the same time, you know, it's not that hard for me to do something nice for others. These leaders, um, they don't think as much about how other people will consider what they do, and it makes them faster at making the right decision. So imagine you're in a group of eight people and you're trying to make the right decision and something simple, picking a restaurant. But you know, nobody's gonna, everybody can't be happy. You only have two choices. It's this type of food, that type of food. Somebody in the group, you already know that, doesn't like one or the other. So you cannot make them all happy. You could get stuck. And what is the what do these successful people do? They're like, it's okay. 
you know, that somebody's going to be upset. We're going to pick a good choice. They're both good choices. We're going. That person can choose to leave the group and go get whatever. They can order salads. But so that's what these successful people, uh, I did notice that they are less sympathetic. And the first time I noticed it, I was disturbed by it because I was thinking the romantic side of elite performers. Oh, they're wonderful. They're, they're Superman, you know, wants to save the world. Not really. Yeah, it's, I think it's a key to making a decision. And if you don't make decisions, you're stuck where it is. The piece of software you've developed that companies can use, what sort of data points are you looking for? And what is it that companies will get from it so they choose the right talent? Yeah, great, great question. So that was uh, the assessment I mentioned earlier that you can go to epitesting.com. What I here's here's where it came from. It came from my work with the Navy SEALs. So I was working on a project where I was trying to ensure that their assessment worked properly. After I did this big evaluation, I said, you know what? A couple of things I feel like are missing. Uh, it, maybe I can replace it. And I there's I realized eventually that I wasn't going to do that, and instead a, a wider application would be building this something that all of us can benefit, not just like picking people for Navy SEAL training. It looks at some of the things that we talked about. It looks at um, people's mindset towards adapting, towards learning, towards um, thinking I can influence my environment or I, my environment is in control of me. So it looks, it looks for these thinking strategies that are productive and literally correlated with success and probably causally driving success. So it can be used for screening. It can also be used for adaptation. It can be used for feedback. So people can get this profile and they can be coached on it and they can learn. And, you know, like I mentioned, resilience is measured, but resilience is teachable. A lot of people think I'm like this. I'm not like this. Is, is it similar to DISC? It, it is. But so let me tell you what's different. So what's different is I studied elite performers, DISC studied people. So our my industry uh, is comes out of the clinical psychology field. They were the first ones to do personality testing. They did it to diagnose personality disorders. So then when my field took it over, they said, oh, this is how you study personality. That's sort of the wrong approach. What you want to do is you want to study the part of personality that matters at work. I mean, it depends on what you're going to use a test for. You're going to use it for marriage counseling or you're going to use it to drive your workplace behavior, your work performance. So mine is geared towards what matters at work and what's related to successful people in a work environment. And again, a lot of assessments might make that claim. But once again, the a, a, a contrast would be based on what? I didn't base it on success at work, period. I based it on the elements of elite performers that drive their success that could also apply to all of us. So there's some that can't and there's some that can. It's fascinating. It's definitely will intrigue a lot of people and I'm sure it does intrigue a lot of companies that, that take this on. Again, for me, I would like to leave your audience mostly with that these, if they sound out of reach, they're really not. These are things that people need to practice. They need to adopt. 
and their life will change. And it, it's it's literally that simple. Now it takes it takes a long time to build a thought a thought habit, but it's totally within their reach. And if they need help, there's the assessment. We also offer coaching. Love to do that for organizations. Love to do that for individuals. But this is again, you know, I when I saw that resilience, I thought you were born with it. But when I saw that resilience was teachable through successive exposure, I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, what can't we change? Every day, I have to sit down and I kind of go, okay, if I'm developing or working on something to, to gain new, you know, outreach, I have to look at a thing. You know what? I'm the best that there is. And by doing, if I don't go and reach this person, I'm I'm not doing them a service and I'm letting them down. Some of them might be so far out that no, but I have to kind of go, I'm doing them a service. And that's what I have to do that every day. Because if I didn't, you'd be going, oh no, they're too big or they're, oh no, they're this and they're that and I'm only, and that's the, the voices in our head. So working on that all the time. If someone wants to speak to you, if someone wants to reach out to you on LinkedIn, um, what's your LinkedIn profile? It is Josh Cotton. Yeah, I got mine early as well. <laughs> Josh, thanks for coming on to Dublin South FM. It's been a pleasure and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. What if you could have a sustainable business without the liquidity concerns and make your company more profitable? Curious? Check out our tried and tested proven client acquisition formula. Go to www.joedalton.ie and book your free consultation now.